I went to a wedding not long ago and uh, we got to the second most exciting part of a wedding, uh, which is the vows. most exciting part's the kiss, isn't it? But the vows. And the wife said, sorry, the bride said this, I take you to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to submit until we are parted by death. And when she said those words, and to submit, you could hear half the people in the room suddenly draw in breath. Submit? What century are they living in? Are they dinosaurs? What a horrible thing to say, to promise that you would submit. Doesn't that make you vulnerable? Is he going to order you round for the rest of your life? It seems to enable misogyny and domestic violence to make a promise like that. It's a sort of trigger word, isn't it? And it's in our passage in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, today I'm going to attempt the impossible. Well, at least for some of the people in this room, I think. I want to commend submission in marriage. That's my task for today. Uh, as a better way to be married. I'm going to try and do that in 25 minutes or so. Now, I realise I'm speaking as a man, and for many people that immediately disqualifies me. I should not speak on this topic. I should not tell wives what they should do. I'm cancelled simply by definition. I'm sorry, I'm going to keep speaking. But I'm really glad that Bethany, who's Matt Smith's wife, is coming, has come today, and Bethany is going to contribute to this. She's going to share some of her understanding and experience of being a wife. So, Bethany, thanks for coming, and we'll hear from Bethany soon. But I'm going to speak as a man. Uh, The context, if you remember from the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, is Paul's admonition to Christians, those who've come to believe in Jesus, to put off the old life, the life I used to live, and instead live the new life that God has created me for. Walk in a way worthy of the calling, in step with your calling. Not in step with the culture around us, but with the calling God has given us. And the calling here includes for wives to submit. But what does submit mean? Well, it's a very simple word. It means to place yourself under somebody else. It's the flip side of head. There's a head and there's a person who submits to the head. It speaks of some sort of order. Now, it inevitably includes the idea of authority. You are under their authority. And in verse 21, it says, submit to one another. It says to all of us, submit to one another as to the Lord, or out of reverence for Christ. That is, all of us in some relationships, in some situations, are called on to submit, not just wives to husbands, but all of us. Now, let me try and illustrate. In this meeting, I'm submitting to Kingsley. Kingsley told me when to stand up and talk. Kingsley was the one who sent out the run sheet. Of course, this is his meeting. He's the MC of this meeting. And so I choose to submit to him. I ought to submit to him. Is that because he's smarter than me? Well, he is, but that's not the reason. Is it because he's, he's just better, he's stronger than me? Well, he is, but that's not the reason. Is it because he's older than me? No, he's not. It's simply because that's his role. He has the responsibility 
of shaping and leading this meeting. So it's not about who's better, who's stronger, who's smarter. It's simply the responsibility he bears that I don't bear. So a way of saying it is that authority is just the flip side of responsibility. He's got the responsibility for the meeting. He's got the authority to order this meeting. I'm part of the meeting. I submit to his lead in this situation. Another situation, he may submit to my lead. It depends on what's going on. It happens in almost all of life, doesn't it? You're in a sporting team. There's a coach. There's a captain. They have responsibilities. And because of their responsibilities, they have some authority. The coach can determine the game plan because he carries responsibility, or she, for what happens in the game. Ultimately, if, if you bomb out, the coach is the one who gets sacked. They've got that responsibility, therefore they have the authority and must have the authority to decide on the game plan. You can't take responsibility for something you don't have authority for. And so submission is just part of life. It's essential for civic society. Broadly, that's true. We couldn't exist as a society unless people submitted in the appropriate places. It's also true in smaller, in individual relationships. I submit to Kingsley in this situation. The opposite of submission is autonomy. No one's going to tell me what to do, which really is anarchy. It doesn't work as a society. It doesn't work in any community. And so it's normal for people to submit. And God calls on people to submit where it's appropriate. But for Christians, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, it's even more normal for us. Sorry, I should say as well, submission is always voluntary, at least the way it's talked about here. It's not somebody forcing submission. It's, in this case, us willingly submitting where it's uh, appropriate to welcome the exercise of authority like I want to do with Kingsley. Christians have an added reason, though, to submit. You see in verse 21, submit out of reverence for Christ. Or verse 23, as Christ is head of the church, his body, that's how wives are to submit. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ is head over all Christians, over his church, which is all Christians across the world at all time. When you become a Christian, you bow your knee to Jesus. You willingly submit to his leadership, to his lordship. You turn away from self-assertion and autonomy, away from anarchy, and you submit to Jesus. And if you've done that, can I ask you, what does it feel like to submit to Jesus? I hope at one level it just feels right. It's appropriate because he's Lord, I'm not. He made me, he created me, he sustains my life. It's right, it's necessary in order for me to live in a reconcile to him, I, I need to submit. To get on with him, I need to submit. But it's actually better than that. It's wonderful to submit to Jesus because he serves me as my Lord. He gave his life for me. And that's the sort of Lord it's wonderful to submit to because he's concerned for my interests. He loves me deeply. It's not that he's become my servant and I order him around, but as my Lord, he has served me. And so submitting to Jesus is wonderful. I hope you've experienced that. And so submission is a core Christian value. You can't be a Christian without embracing submission 
as a fundamental orientation of life. We submit to Christ and we submit to those Christ gives authority to. He gives responsibility to, like Kingsley in this meeting. And so chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. What he's saying is that it's appropriate. God gives parents responsibility to bring up their children, to provide for them, to protect them, to shape them. And so children should submit to their parents, to honour their parents by obeying them while they're children. Not because the parents are somehow more valuable than they are. It's not because the parents are bigger or have more money. Those things may be true. But because as parents, they're responsible to God for the welfare of their children. So children should submit and obey. If you're with us last week, we saw that this section on submitting actually comes under the heading of being filled with the Spirit or being filled by the Spirit. Verse 18 of chapter 5, Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit instead of being drunk, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, always giving thanks to God the Father, submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus, wives to husbands. It's not just that we submit to Jesus. The work of the Spirit in our lives leads us to submission. The Spirit's fundamental ministry is to bring us to submission to Jesus Christ, to bow our knee to him. If you have the Spirit working in your life, then you will be submitting in appropriate relationships. You know Jesus, you submit to him. The Spirit himself delights to submit to the direction of the Father and the Son within the Trinity. And so to not submit when we should is to resist the Spirit, is to grieve the Spirit. But submission doesn't look the same in every relationship and every situation. You might notice, as the passage was read by Will, that wives submit to husbands, children obey parents, and slaves obey masters. Did you see the the variation there? Children obey, slaves obey, wives submit. And the difference is significant. Because marriage is a different sort of relationship to parenting or to slavery and master. Children are young and foolish and dependent and submitting for them means obedience. It expects the parents will give directions. But wives aren't called to obey, instead to submit. Not just because the husband might command something against God's will, but because marriage is not a relationship about directing and giving orders. It's not like an army regiment where the sergeant says, do this and do that, salute now. It's a very different sort of relationship. But it still has a shape and an order. And the rest of the talk, I know the passage includes children and parenting and slaves and masters. I'm going to focus on marriage. Is that okay? Because I suspect most of us are more interested in that. Um, And because it's more contentious and because the passage gives more space to it. So God's model of marriage. In verse 22, uh, he says... Uh, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. So what's God's model for marriage? It's not what you might see around you, it's not our culture, it's Jesus and his church. 
And so marriages are meant to reflect Christ and his church, in which there's a head, Christ, and a body that submits. Wives are to submit like the church submits to Christ. But we need to include the husbands in this. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's the model, Christ and the church, husbands and wives. But why this model? Like, why didn't he choose tennis as the model? Doubles in tennis, two people playing together? Wouldn't that be a wonderful model for marriage of tennis players? Or why didn't he choose farming? You know, people out there working the field together, partners in it. Why does he choose Christ and the church? Well, I think the answer is because of God's goal for marriage. God's goal for marriage is maybe different to what we think the goal of marriage is. You see it here in the, in the quote in verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one. They'll become one flesh. God's goal in marriage is unity, a oneness of two people. Now, that oneness expressed one flesh is partly in sex, Sexual intercourse involves two bodies coming together to be one. They sort of fit together like jigsaw puzzle pieces, don't they? Well, you might not have experienced that yet, but you know the theory. But the unity that God wants is much deeper and richer than just sex. This whole discussion of marriage is drawn from Genesis 2.24, which he quotes in verse 31. A man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one, one flesh. Remember the context. Adam had been created by God, put in the garden, alone to work the garden. And then God says, hold on, not good. There's something wrong with this picture, this experience, the man to be on his own. And so he creates the woman for the man. She's created from him and for him. She's the same species as he is. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, equally in the image of God, of equal worth, both fully human. But they're different. It's a woman, not another man. It's Eve, not Steve. It's complementary so they'll fit together and form a unity. Because unity is not just sexual, it's personal, it's relational. Two become one in mind and purpose. You're born into one flesh with your family. Now they're to create another one flesh relationship of intimacy and openness. So they were both naked and they felt no shame. God's design, the essential ingredients are two people, both human but different, a man and a woman. Bring their differences together in an ordered relationship. One is head, is not just a flat committee to form a unity. But it's that order that gives us trouble, doesn't it? So let's consider another alternative. How else could you model marriage? What's the model of our culture? Well, I want to suggest the model that most Western cultures now work on is the model of compromise. How do you make a marriage work? Well, each has to compromise. And there's some truth in that. So you get two individuals who are different, different personalities, different tastes, different ambitions. What do they need to share the same space together and maybe have some happiness? Well, if they're going to cohabit successfully... Each needs to compromise their preferences so the other can express and enjoy their preferences. So what TV shows do you watch? 
Well, I guess you could have two TVs, but if you want to have any sort of relationship, you've got to compromise a bit, don't you? She likes romance, he likes thrillers. Let's have a romantic thriller. We need to compromise. Coffee? He likes decaf, she likes... Well, you've got to compromise, don't you? But it's also not just in our, our sort of preferences. It's also in ambitions and aspirations. So one of the most common uh, phrases I've heard, especially in the media, about marriage is something like this. Well, she sacrificed her career so I could develop mine. It's now time for me to sacrifice mine so she can develop her career. Now, there are lots of positives in that. And it's true that marriage will always involve compromise. But I want you to just imagine what sort of relationship is created by compromise, where that is your fundamental principle. I think you'll recognise quite quickly it becomes very transactional because I will only compromise as much as you do. Each must compromise to the same extent. It's, it's tit for tat. If you compromise this far, then I'll compromise that far. If you don't, I'll only meet you where you've got to. That can never produce the sort of unity that God desires. Instead, it leads to a situation where both protect their rights. It assumes that happiness will come by me being able to have my desires differently to my spouse and by protecting those. So, yes, I'll compromise some so she can have some or he can have some, but it's mainly found in getting my preferences, having my career, not in the unity of the relationship. And so at heart, each is still looking out for their own interests first. Yes, I'll fit with you where it works, where I, I can compromise and where you're willing to compromise. If you don't compromise, I won't compromise. And so your eye is constantly watching what the other does. Your mind is constantly keeping a score of how much compromise the other has made. That cannot produce unity. Not that transparent intimacy, that unity of heart and purpose. That place where the barriers are all let down because you trust each other where there's safety. It just can't work. God's model is very different. It's the model of Christ and the church. It starts in verse 25 in particular. Husbands, love your wives. Um, sorry, I've lost my place. Uh, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ loved the church. He didn't wait for the church to love him. No, he loved the church and gave himself up for the church. He laid down his life for her. It's not built on something as fleeting as chemistry, but on commitment to act. Jesus acted in love, deep, rich, committed love. And he didn't do it because the church was beautiful. He didn't do it as the church was beautiful, saying, you must stay that way or I might not love you anymore. Instead, he did it to make her beautiful, to flourish in all that she could become. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. Your spouse is not a foreign object to share space with and compromise with, 
but as your own body responsible to nourish it and care for it. And so he goes on in verse 30. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. When God created marriage, he modelled marriage between a man and a woman, between Adam and Eve, on the Christ and the church. Now, got to think about this a little bit carefully. See, here's a building and a model of the building. Which You can work out which one's real, can you? And probably you can recognise the building if you've travelled outside WA. Anybody not? That's the Sydney Opera House, okay? Um, yeah, just in case. Put you out of your misery. Okay. Now, think of a situation where the building's built and you want to build a model of it. What do you do? Well, it's got to be the same as the building that's built, isn't it? Uh, that's how you build a model. Well, when it comes to marriage, which is the building and which is the model taken from the building? What Paul is saying is the original, what God had in mind, his intended building is the relationship between Christ and the church. Sort of like this way round. That's what he had in mind. He was building all the time for this relationship between Christ and the church. It's the original. And then he designed human marriage to reflect the original, to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. And that is profound and revolutionary. Firstly, it means that we're not at liberty to change the model of marriage because the model is built on something much much more permanent, eternal and significant uh, than our marriage. It's not built on some model out there in human society. It's built on, on God's plans and purposes from all eternity for all eternity, this relationship between Christ and his church. But I want you to notice too that although we're not at liberty to change the model, it's not arbitrary or merely cultural, it's not a detailed model. It just gives you the broad shape of it. Head, submit. It's a principle. It doesn't tell you who puts out the rubbish, who does the cooking. It doesn't give you any details about how to live that out in any culture or any marriage. It just gives you the very broad structure of it. And that's really helpful because every marriage is two unique people and the marriage they create will be different to every other marriage. Please don't let anybody ever say to you, our marriage does it this way, that's how you should do it. Now, each couple has the adventure of working out for themselves what headship and submission is going to look like. And that's a wonderful gift from God. The second profound implication is that human marriage, me having a spouse here, is not essential for human flourishing. You could understand that from Genesis. The man's alone. God creates a woman for him. Unless I have a wife, unless I have a husband, uh, life will be terrible. But all Christians are already part of the most intimate, satisfying relationship you can ever be party to. As a member of Christ's church, his beloved, cherished bride. And if you stay single all your life, you you don't miss out on anything that matters. So, how does this model work out in practice? Well, let's start with husbands. No, go back. 
Verse 25 is pretty simple, isn't it? Straightforward. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Guys, can you listen to this, please? If you get married, I know most of you aren't married at the moment. If you get married, this is what God calls you to, to love your spouse, to love your wife, to lay down your life for her. And the standard of love is Jesus. It's not your dad. It's not your next door neighbour. It's Jesus who laid down his life for you. Notice this involves initiative, not waiting for your wife to do her part, not even not doing it if she doesn't do her part, but taking the initiative. And that immediately rules out bullying. It rules out authoritarian dominating. It rules out any form of domestic violence. Instead, it's going to be very different to that. If you want to love your wife, you need to listen hard. Understand her, straining to understand what she really wants, what will be good for her, what her needs are, putting her tastes, her interests uh, above yours, putting yours aside for what is best for her. You're ahead, yes. You're in a leadership position, yes. But you're to lead like Christ. Taking the initiative to lay down your life. Taking the responsibility for her welfare, for for her good, including her growth in Christ-likeness, washing her, cleansing her. Now, need to be a bit careful here because some husbands go into marriage thinking, I'm going to change my wife. I know she needs a lot of change. I'm going to change her so that she's exactly the wife I want. Please don't do that. No, you you are there to change her, but to change her into the person Christ wants her to be not to satisfy your selfish uh, ideas. Yes, there will be change. You're to encourage her and give her space to create the right conditions for her to flourish as a disciple of Jesus, as a disciple, to become that beautiful person God is transforming her into. In a sense, you could say you get to be a co-sculptor with God. And that means there's some wrong ways of being head. Obviously being autocratic, authoritarian, just bullying, ordering around, issuing commands, expecting to be waited on hand and foot. No, that's not what it means. I think it does mean that when you have a disagreement, when you can't work out a way forward, then you have to make the final call. That's your responsibility. But do it for her good, not yours, you selfish pig. Sorry, I was speaking to myself there. (laughs) The second wrong way to do it is by being absent, by disengaging, abdicating any leadership, just saying, well, I'm just going to go to the shed. I'm just going to go to the pub. I'll leave my family, my wife, uh, to to fight for themselves. No, be involved with love and with strength. Wives, you're called on to submit. Husbands, love. Wives, submit. Support your husband's leadership, whether he's doing it well or not. Invite his involvement. Share your thinking and strengths. Work with him in the directions he's leading you in. Now, Bethany's going to have some much more helpful things to say. Bethany, can I ask you to come and just share with us some of your experience and wisdom on submission? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. As Tim said, I'm Bethany and I'm married to Matt. He's currently dealing with poop and screaming children so that I can be here today. So submission. Now, 
For some of you, the idea of submission in marriage is probably familiar and not so confronting. For some of you, it's uncomfortable, and for some, it's shocking and possibly even distressing. I can resonate. I have had those feelings when encountering certain parts of the Bible, and especially when it comes to thinking about and applying God's word to gender roles. But can I encourage you not to let those feelings get in the way of seeking to understand and submit to it? If we trust our Father to be loving and good, then we can trust his word, the Bible, to reflect those things. And this is true even when it feels hard to hear. I know from personal experience that that's easier said than done. So please do come and chat to me or the CU staff afterward if you'd like someone to debrief with. So what's submission been like practically for me in marriage? Well, I thought I'd actually begin by saying what it hasn't been like. It hasn't been about obeying Matt, as Tim said. Submission is more nuanced than just obeying orders. Nor has it meant that Matt makes all the decisions. Submission isn't passive. But he does have final responsibility when it comes to certain significant decisions that impact our family. It hasn't meant that I've been obligated to assume a traditional gender role of being in the home while he's out working. This is not what submission is about. However, our theology of headship and submission has shaped our decisions relating to work and home life. And finally, some of you may have seen my Big Fat Greek Wedding, where the mother says her husband is the head, but she's the neck who could turn the head in any direction she wants. Now, it's a funny scene in the movie, but the idea of that is actually really manipulative and another good example of what it hasn't been like for me to submit to Matt. It hasn't been about appearing meek and then sneakily grabbing power or usurping him whenever it's convenient. So then what has it been like to submit? I see submission as first and foremost an attitude, a posture. And so for me, submitting to Matt has looked like seeking to maintain this attitude. It's quite countercultural, and so I wouldn't say that it's necessarily been easy. At times, it's tempting to try and operate like many people do in society, where it's all about couples sharing and making compromises very equally. It can also be tempting to try and assume his role as so what sort of attitude am I seeking to have? Well, it definitely involves respect, but it's more than that, as Matt respects me too. It's an attitude where I do actually want him to be the head. It's something I desire for our marriage. And so I encourage him in that. I encourage him to take responsibility for me and for our family, particularly spiritually, but that's certainly not where it stops. I seek to support him. And a big part of that is trusting him, not second-guessing him, and accepting the ways he goes about loving me sacrificially, rather than rejecting them out of pride or self-sufficiency. This attitude towards Matt stems first and foremost from my attitude towards God. I want to maintain the order he established rather than push against it. To trust that he established this order for my good, for Matt's good, for our family and for our society. And in my experience, submission has been a joy because Matt has also been working hard to love me in the way he was called to do, as Christ loves the church. And if you ask me, he has the far harder job. Submitting to someone who is trying to love you like that is lovely, and that's how it's meant to be. It's meant to be beautiful, just like a dance where the male leads the female. 
Submission has been a privilege because I get to be part of a living metaphor of Christ's love for the church. So then, submission, well, for me, it's been a recognition that Matt is the group leader and being glad about that, desiring that, not taking it from him, but humbly supporting him and not neglecting my own role within our marriage. It doesn't mean I'm passive and quiet. It doesn't mean I can't take initiative or work outside the home. It doesn't mean I'm less valuable as a person or in our marriage. We are dependent upon one another in order to function and in order to be that metaphor that God created marriage to be of Christ and the church. And I do believe that Matt and I have been drawn, near, drawn nearer to one another because we've assumed this God-given order than would have been possible without it. We, we have drawn nearer to each other because we are actually dancing together, not just next to each other. We've been able to complement each other and meet each other's needs in a very profound way. But that's certainly not to say it's ever been easy. Um, but yeah, that has been my experience of submission. Um, so thanks for having me. Um, and please do come and chat to me after, if especially something I've said has um, raised any questions or concerns. Thank you, Bethany. And it's really good that, uh, to have you around today. And please uh, talk to her if you'd like to discuss any of that um, with her. So let me try and draw this together uh, with a couple of things. Um, what is marriage supposed to be like? I think if I was going to use human analogy instead of Christ in the church, I'd say it's a bit like, like ice dancing. Do you, do you watch it at the Olympics? Anytime I ever watch it. it. It is magnificent, isn't it? And it relies on uh, the, the skill of both and what they contribute to, to what they do together. But it also relies on an order. The guy leading and the woman following. He leads to make her shine, to bring joy and, and show off her beauty. Their, their steps are different. They're complementary. They, they fit together. The man uses all his strength and power to exhilarate his partner. The woman uses all her grace and poise to thrill under his lead. That's a picture of marriage. Christ in the church is even better. But if that one helps, terrific. So where do we go? To the un, Well, most of us are unmarried. So I want to bring three things home. The first is, if you're not married... What Paul says, what God says in this passage, implies that there's no compulsion to get married. Now, many cultures don't give you that option. If you're not married, there's something wrong with you. If you don't have a life partner of some sort, we feel that pressure to pair up, the pressure not to be left alone. And it's true that life as a single can be lonely. But God's cure for loneliness is the eternal marriage relationship between Christ and his church. That'll be wonderfully consummated in the resurrection. But even now, you know Christ. You've been fully accepted and embraced by him. And you're part of the body, you're part of the church in that rich web of relationships that will continue into the age to come. Secondly, I want to urge you to welcome God's model of marriage. As Bethany says, it's given for our good. That's the only model of marriage that can produce that sort of intimacy and unity that God wants and we crave. It will feel risky because he won't love you like Christ does and she won't support and encourage you like the church does to Christ. It'll be there a little bit and growing, I hope, but it will always feel a bit risky. So choose wisely if you're going to get married 
someone who has the same goal in life as you, someone whose lead you can respect, whose loyalty you can count on. But don't change the model out of fear that it won't work. To do so is to sabotage any hope of a wonderful marriage. And if you're still single, practice now. Guys, learn to love like Christ loved the church. My wife, Rosemary, has this um, habit of asking any guy when they get engaged, will you lay down your life for your, um, your fiancé? Are you willing to do that? It's sort of rude and, and intrusive, but it's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, are, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do it for the unlovely? Because if you're only willing to do it for the attractive people, you aren't ready to get married yet. You need to actually give some time to leading. Take on responsibility and see it through. Learn how to listen and understand, especially understand women, because they're different. Gloriously different, but confusingly, opaquely different. And take initiative to love and to serve. Girls, learn to submit. Look for ways you can team up with others to serve with them, including guys. Sometimes our sort of segregated ministry, or girls to girls, guys to guys, makes it sort of works against us. When you're tempted to cut anyone down because they've stuffed it up, which guys especially will do often, learn to hold your tongue. Work out how to help them grow into a good leader. Give them encouragement and feedback rather than contempt. Verse 33. Each husband must learn to love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's actually a wonderful summary, because I think at, deep down, what men want and need and crave is to be respected, is to be treated as if what we're doing is worth doing, and we can do it. And what women crave, more than anything else, is to be loved is to feel that safety and security that no matter what happens, no matter what another person knows about them, they'll be welcomed and accepted. Friends, we're not in the battle of the sexes. We're partners in life, we're partners in ministry, and maybe partners in marriage. Let's be partners. Amen.